Fortunately for me, the book we are chatting about on today's episode needs very little in the way of introduction. That's right, folks. We are finally getting to Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. More specifically, on episode 114, we are digging into the first book in the series, which was published in 1999 with the title The Bad Beginning. And let me just say, coming back to this was a wild ride. In The Bad Beginning, we meet the three recently orphaned Baudelaire children, Violet, Klaus, and Sunny. Having lost their parents, they are placed under the care of a so-called distant relative, who, it's worth noting, they have never met named Count Olaf. Count Olaf is out for only one thing, and it's their money. When he realizes that he can't access it simply by becoming their guardian, things get pretty dark. Actually, they get really dark. He will stop at essentially nothing to cash in on the Baudelaire fortune, and the children are forced to get brave and resourceful to ensure that his evil plans are not successful. On episode 114, my guests and I talk about this plotline specifically, as well as the series as a whole. We consider why Lemony Snicket's world was so appealing to young readers. We talk about his portrayal of basically all adults as incompetent and wonder about his personal experiences with the legal system, which he appears to be making fun of in the bad beginning. We discuss the way the book is an extreme version of the orphan trope we've seen in other books on the podcast, and the way it forces the Baudelaire's to exercise creativity, problem-solving, and resiliency. And we talk a lot about whether or not this book, and the series as a whole, is too dark for kids. How unfortunate is too unfortunate for a fictional world? I'll note that there's a lot of discussion about Count Olaf's attempt to force Violet, again his child relative, to marry him against her will. If any element of that is triggering for you, please be aware of that going into this conversation. My guest today is Kayla Graves, who you may know from Bookstagram as Honey Butter Gal. Kayla is at the forefront of creating equitable and just urban communities. Her current series, Racism in American Cities, focuses on how various policies and events throughout American history have led to the creation of modern race relations in cities. Other ongoing projects include providing resources for people to become more involved in local politics and discussing how cities and other organizations are creating inclusive changes in communities around America and Canada. Prior to her current role as an educator and essayist, Kayla worked at an economic development and urban policy firm, where she worked closely with a variety of government agencies, nonprofits, foundations, and private sector clients to develop policies and programs that support the country's changing demographics. Kayla's work included creating the grant-making structure to address challenges in the supportive housing ecosystem for the Mother Cabrini Foundation, New York State's largest foundation, and managing the political transition of Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo. Find Kayla on Instagram at HoneyButterGal or on her website, HoneyButterGal.com. Find SSR on our website at www.ssrpodcast.com and across social media too. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. If you're looking for something a little chattier on Facebook, you might consider searching for the SSR Podcast community instead. In that group, we do a little more talking about the books from the podcast, chat about what we're reading, and swap other fun resources. I would love to see you over there. I'd also love to see you sharing the episodes you're really enjoying to your Instagram story. All you have to do is take a screenshot of the episode wherever you're listening to it, tag SSR Pod, and post it to your story. This is also a great place to share any of the thoughts you have about the discussions we're having on the show. I read all of them. You can also share your thoughts about the podcast in a rating or review on iTunes. These really do help more people find the podcast, so thank you for taking the time to rate and or review. Do you want to take your love for SSR a step further? I have one word for you. Patreon. 
Patreon gives you a chance to put your money where your mouth is with the content you love. For as little as a dollar per month, you can become a patron, and there are different exclusive rewards available at every tier. You can get SSR swag, on-demand book recommendations, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, and more. I really appreciate the love from all of SSR's patrons. Shout out to you if you're listening, and I would love to welcome you into the group. Visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more details and next steps. As my grad school reading schedule picks up on top of my reading list for the podcast, I'm getting a little nervous that I might never have time to read just for fun again. When I brought this up on Instagram a few weeks ago, many of my followers mentioned that audiobooks could be the perfect solution, and I think you all are right. Personally, I only buy audiobooks from Libre FM because it allows me to support independent bookstores instead of giant corporations in the process. The audiobooks are exactly the same as the ones you would purchase from those big guys, and they're the same price too. Plus, SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libre FM. Go to Libre FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Once you're there, you can choose the independent bookstore you'd like to support with your purchase. I like to support Books Are Magic, the indie bookstore in my old neighborhood in Brooklyn. Okay, listeners, things are about to get really bad. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Kayla. Welcome to SSR. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How is your Tuesday going? It's going good. Just another day in the life quarantine edition. It's all so exciting, isn't it? So exciting and so glamorous. Yes, yes. Tuesdays are my least favorite day of the week, which I know is weird because it's the day that I release my podcast. And that was like (laughs) part of why, because I was like, oh, this will be a fun thing to look forward to every Tuesday. And it's fun to have a recording, especially smack in the middle of the day when like my energy is kind of draining. Really fun to have a Tuesday recording. Definitely makes Tuesdays a little more fun. And this book, I I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of feelings. I think a lot of people <laughs> might be mad at me. Today we're talking about the first book in Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events series. It's called The Bad Beginning. I don't think I realized when I read this book as a kid that it like had its own title as The Bad Beginning. But I'm very happy that we're finally getting to this series. It's a series that I've wanted to get to for a long time. It's a series that a lot of people have requested we cover on the show. And you actually suggested it to me for this session. So I'd love for you to share a little bit more about your personal history with the book or maybe the whole series and why you wanted to talk about it today. Yeah. So, I mean, growing up, Harry Potter, like I was in the household where Harry Potter was like not allowed. And so I loved that this series allowed me to steal 
feel a part of like a book release or a part of a series that I could actually enjoy and read. So I remember reading these sometimes in like a single day, just as soon as the the next book was released and just like really connecting with the characters and like the situations they find themselves in are so strange and outlandish, but I love how the world building is just so bizarre, but like in a delightful way. That's a great way to describe it. Yeah. Did you read the whole series? Yeah. Okay. I don't think I read the whole series. I definitely read the first few. So for context, this first book in the series came out in 1999. So I was nine. I think I probably read it shortly after it was published because as listeners know, like that's just kind of what I did. Um, it was all about like whatever was in front at Barnes & Noble. And the thing that I remember maybe primarily about these books or my first impression of them was like these books as objects were really cool like I hadn't seen a lot of books that looked like like these books they were hardcover but they didn't have a jacket for my days in the publishing industry I know that we call this paper overboard um (laughs) so they were these paper overboard like kind of a different size than a lot of the other books that I was used to seeing they had these beautiful cover illustrations there's just something about them that like drew me in and similar to you like recalling this happening in the age of Harry Potter. It came out sort of I think maybe between a few of the Harry Potter installments and listeners I'm I'm not going to get into <laughs> the very complicated nature of how we find ourselves in Harry Potter land right now cuz that's <laughs> an that's a topic for like five other podcasts that I I haven't quite wrapped my head around yet. But I was an avid Harry Potter reader when I was a kid and I feel like I stumbled upon this series maybe like between a couple of the books and I was like, "Oh, this this is pretty. This is cool." And it was very like different from anything that I had ever read like the tone of it is different even the author's name like Lemony Mm -hmm. Snicket you're like oh this this is like different this is cool definitely a unique flavor and so I loved the first couple of books like I said I think I maybe fell off like halfway through but I really like ate these up early on Mm -hmm. I just think like there's just something about the style like I was looking at it now even as an adult and like I look at it now more as like a marketing thing almost, which is like a weird way to think about it. But I was looking at, I, I don't have the same like cool hardcover edition now. I have this like new kind of not as cool paperback edition, but like the back cover, it just says like, please read something else. Yeah. And then um, at the bottom, it says, be advised, this volume constitutes only one thirteenth of Mr. Snicket's or series <laughs> of unfortunate events. Readers unafraid of bloodshed will want to continue with the second installment, The Reptile Room. Others will not. And I can see how like, especially for a reluctant reader, this would like be such an easy sell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I was able to snag the original hardback cover. I used to own the books, but they somehow got lost like in the like post-grad shuffle. But I, I just remember like holding this book and when I reread it recently, just thinking about how small it is. And as a kid, when I was reading this book, thinking about how big it felt when this is like less than 200 pages and it's not a very like heavy book, but as a kid and with small hands, right? this just seems like a, like it's, it's very tactile. Well, and such an accomplishment to finish 
that kind of book as a kid. Like I remember feeling the same way. And then all of these books that I read for SSR, your perspective is so different. Because I have to psych myself up sometimes because I'm like, okay, I have to read X number of books for X number of recordings. (laughs) And then I actually get the books in my hand. And I'm like, it's so much shorter than I remember it being, which is obviously just because I'm older and a different kind of reader. I found a lot of essays about this book that, that talk about there are a few like core themes. One of the things that came up again and again is that this book really played on this idea that the best way to get a kid to do something is to tell them not to do it. And so the marketers and even Lemony Snicket himself came at this series by saying to readers like, you shouldn't read this book. Like it's way too sad. It's way too hardcore for you. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. And and if you think that may have been an effective strategy for you, or if it's an effective strategy for like kids as a whole. Yeah, definitely. I think especially in rereading it, I, I, think that this is a great series to also read aloud because it's it's the perfect blend of a book that is both accessible to like a middle grade reader, like in that like eight to 12 age range. But the way that the writing is, it also lends itself so well to being read aloud by like a parent, a chapter each night. And so I think that the marketing definitely helped me at least want to read and find out like why this person is telling me not to read a book because so often you hear from grownups as a kid, like you should read, you should read. So it was definitely weird being told not to read it. You're like, okay, yeah. so I, I have to read it and find out yeah. why. Like, yeah. what is all the fuss about? Yeah. <laughs> I found some interesting kind of like pub history about the book and about Daniel Handler, who, sorry, everyone, is Lemony yeah. <laughs> Snicket. And weirdly, like, I think that I still thought that Lemony Snicket's identity was a mystery. I guess it's because I just, like, I enjoyed the series as a kid, but it's not, it's not a series that I've stayed, like, tapped into the culture of or the fandom of. And so when I was researching to talk to you today, I was like shocked that people now know him, that there's like photos of him on the internet. And for me, that kind of dulls the magic of it a little bit, because I think one of the things that was so special about this series was the mysterious identity of the author. And there's so much breaking of the fourth wall in this book. Like we get so many asides from the narrator talking about himself, talking about kind of like how he wants readers to process the story. And it just like kind of made me sad that I was like, oh, this is from Daniel. This isn't from Lemony. And that's me as an adult talking, of course. But I did discover that he actually came to the idea of the series while he was pitching around a manuscript that he had written for adults. And he wasn't getting a lot of traction. But HarperCollins said, like, we're going to pass on this, but would you be interested in writing a kid series? So now, of course, I'm like dying to know mm-hmm. what that adult manuscript was like, because that's not really something that I've heard before, like an unknown author submitting a manuscript and and somebody being like, yeah, this isn't great, but can you write for children? Um, probably not what he expected would come out of this querying process, but they said, you know, we think you would be good at this. And he wasn't into the idea at first because he just, like, I think he thought that a lot of the books that he read as a kid were lame. Was, I think that's the best word I can use to describe it based on the things that I've read about him. And they sat him down and they had a meeting and they were like, okay, fair, but would you be interested in writing a book that you would have wanted to read as a kid? And that's how this all happened. So I thought that was kind of an interesting backstory. And that's what brought Daniel Handler to his Lemony Snicket identity, to a series of unfortunate events, and to this first book in the series, a bad beginning. Since 1999, when this book was published, the series has sold 60 million copies and 
total. There's 13 books and then a few sort of like tangential complementary titles. And it's been translated into 41 languages, I believe, which is very cool. And in terms of like starting this conversation about the bad beginning, I, I think I have to read the first paragraph because that paragraph alone, it did bring me so much joy. It made me so happy to jump back into this world. And here it is. It says, if you are interested in stories with happy endings, you would be better off reading some other book. In this book, not only is there no happy ending, there is no happy beginning and very few happy things in the middle. This is because not very many happy things happened in the lives of the three Baudelaire youngsters. Violet, Klaus, and Sunny Baudelaire were intelligent children, and they were charming and resourceful and had pleasant facial features, but they were extremely unlucky, and most everything that happened to them was rife with misfortune, misery, and despair. I'm sorry to tell you this, but that is how the story goes. Tell me about your experience reading that paragraph as an adult, because I asked you to, like, what did it feel like to come back to that? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I have so many, I'm I'm just like reminiscing, especially when you were also talking about all of the companions. Like I, I read the Beatrice letters. That was like a spinoff of this. And I, I think in reading, especially the opening paragraph, I love how unafraid he is and kind of spelling it out for kids because I think so often when I read books, especially books when I was a kid, things are painted in a like very pretty picture. You know, it's like things might happen in the middle of a book, but they're all nicely resolved by the end. And I think I appreciated as a kid the realness of it because even as an eight or nine year old, I knew that like the world wasn't a rosy or nice place. And having an adult articulate that in a kid's book or a book geared towards kids just made me feel like I was spoken to as an adult, even though obviously I wasn't. And then I think in rereading it, I was really struck again by just how real it felt and how he wasn't trying to hide behind anything like life sometimes isn't nice. Life sometimes isn't smooth sailing or nicely resolved by the end of a book. And I think that's important for kids to learn. And it was a nice reminder, especially living now during a pandemic and that you can have the best intentions and nicely plan out your life, but sometimes it doesn't work out that way. And that's okay. I have so many thoughts and I (laughs) I just have so many things I want to say because I think what you said just captured another quality about this book that is so unique and so special and that came through in some of the essays that I was talking about before, this concept that Daniel Handler as Lemony Snicket really spoke to children in a way that they were not used to being spoken to. I mean, even in a series like Harry Potter, and again, setting aside some of the more recent controversy about the author of Harry Potter, Harry Potter introduced kids to this really complex world. And yes, there's good and there's evil in that series. And in 1999, when a series of unfortunate events launched, that's what a lot of kids were used to. But there's still a simplicity to it. I mean, it's very obvious who's good, who our heroes are in that series. It's very clear who's bad and who the villains are. This book has some muddier waters. It's a little bit more ambiguous. And there isn't necessarily any single place or person or thing that the kids can turn to for like guaranteed safety. And that's a really hard thing to process. But I do think that whether we like it or not, kids sense that. Like kids know that like 
the world does not always set us up for like an easy break. You know, that's just not how it works. And I I think especially now in 2020, I wonder if this book resonates even more with kids because let's face it, like our world, our society, our culture has only gotten more complicated, more painful, more difficult. And I just, I would imagine that this book is like really refreshing, especially for a certain kind of kid who is like, okay, stop talking to me like a child. Like I know what's going on. I found an essay in The Guardian talking about all of this. The quote that really stood out to me there was, perhaps a series of unfortunate events is so special simply because Handler saw children as people which captures it so well. Like he's not trying to fake any sort of like beautiful reality here. Even oh, even if there's a few villains, like it's still great. Like that's not at all the world that he's setting up for us. And I, I think that's what a lot of people have taken issue with. This book has been challenged in a lot of classrooms. There's a lot of libraries that don't carry it or certainly in 1999 were very resistant to carrying it because of some of these like super dark themes and some things that even I took issue with now, if I'm being honest on the reread. But I I really do think that this book must have felt very refreshing to a lot of kids who were just like sick of the BS that they were getting in other books. Yeah, definitely. I think in rereading it, I was really struck by how incompetent all of the adults that in other books would typically be a source of comfort or kind of like the heroes, like Mr. Poe is completely (laughs) incompetent and has no regard for what makes sense. You know, like in the beginning of the book when they're placed with Count Olaf and the kids are like, we've never heard of him. And his response is, well, and your parents will. They said to place you with their, you know, with their closest relative. And the kids are like, well, closest doesn't necessarily mean distance wise. And he's like, no, no, no. I know what's best. I'm an adult. I'm, you know, the executor of your parents' estate. And I think as a kid, there are a lot of times I experience where it's like I knew the answer or something didn't feel right. But adults in my life would be like, no, no, no. Like, I'm, I'm the adult. I know what's best. And it's like sometimes they didn't know what was best. And so I think that that really resonated with me as a kid. And again, in rereading it, being an adult now and knowing that adults definitely don't have all the answers, it was refreshing. Yeah. And I I happen to think that that sense of like adults not always knowing the best thing or not always knowing the right answer, I happen to think that's one of like the best tropes or the best like features that I've seen as like a pattern in a lot of the books that I've come back to for the podcast. Listeners know that like I love when adults are scared. I love when adults mess up the first time around. I love when adults don't necessarily know the answer to a question in in any kid's book. But what is different about a series of unfortunate events, or at least this first book in the series, as I see it, is that there's no, like, redemption for the adults. Like, in all of the other books that we've talked about where I've seen that, that theme or that plot line played out, it's like there's always... A moment where the adult in question has like an honest conversation with the kid character and is like, I was scared, but now like I have learned something about myself. And so now I can help you to be brave or an adult will like apologize to a kid, which I think is always really cool to see and be like, I'm sorry, like I wasn't saying this the right way. I should have handled it differently. And there's absolutely no redemption in this book for really anyone and certainly not for the adults, which again is like, 
I'm sure that a lot of kids were shocked by that. Like, oh, there's not going to be a moment when the adults are going to suddenly be safe and cool and okay. Like, no, they all suck. They're all terrible. None of them are here to help you. And Mr. Poe is the first example of that. I think what struck me about that conversation where he comes and and tells the kids that their parents have died in a fire at their home, he talks about how they are going to be placed with their closest relative. But I think the phrase he also uses is like, according to their will, you are to be raised in like the most convenient fashion, which mm-hmm. maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I've ever heard that sort of a phrase applied to this kind of situation in any fictional or real life situation like do people actually write stuff like that about like how they want their children to be taken care of like as long as it's convenient like we're (laughs) good just keep it convenient for everyone I I completely skimmed or not skimmed over but like forgot about that line but that's right I think Mr. Poe as a as a character is is such a great foil for the audience or the readers because again he's supposed to be in any other children's book he would be the character that is maybe maybe kind of the bumbling idiot, but still, you know, again, has a redemption by the end where it's like, oh, I can't believe I like literally read their their will in this way. Like, of course, I'll place you guys with somebody else. And I also felt that way about the the judge in the book, the other like major adult character in this first book, because she she does actually have more wholesome intentions like she invites them into her library and you know takes them on errands but even when she could help even when there were opportunities for her to step in and say something like when the kids have to buy groceries for example and she's like oh that's weird why are you cooking a full meal for like 12 adults but instead of like taking it a step further and investigating it a bit more she just kind of accepts it for what it is and, you know, takes them on their errands and then drops them back off at Count Olaf's. And I think, again, that that spoke to me as an adult and rereading it and that even if an adult has good intentions or is well-meaning, they can still end up not helping you in the way that you need it or in the way that is obvious. That's a really great point in it. I'm actually reflecting a little bit on one of the reactions I was having to the adults as I was reading it because I I didn't really remember a lot about the plot. So I came into the book kind of like as an open book in terms of like not knowing what was going to happen. So I felt like I was judging a lot of the characters anew. Like I really didn't have a sense of what anybody's intentions were. And with with my, I don't want to say with Justice Strauss, the judge, because I felt like she, like you said, had pretty clearly wholesome intentions. But with Mr. Poe, I, as an adult reader, who I think I've be- I've become more critical, both as a reader and like probably as a person since I was a kid reading this book for the first time. And at every point where we see Mr. Poe, starting even at the beginning when he's delivering this really sad news to the kids and like theoretically trying to place them in the best possible home, I have these notes in my margin that say pretty much like through the whole course of the book, like what are Mr. Poe's intentions? Is he good or is he bad? Because... The way that I read now, my assumption based on his behavior and based on the way that he seemed to be conducting himself, I was like, oh, he definitely has it out for them or he has ulterior motives 
or he's just bad, like he is not well-intentioned. But to your point, like he might not have bad intentions, but that doesn't mean that he's not bad. Like I think we come to the point at the end of the book where we realize that like he is kind of this like bumbling guy who's just like too busy to actually help them or to put in genuine FaceTime to make sure they're okay and like really sort out their parents' affairs. He's not a bad guy. He's just sort of distracted and like not especially helpful, but he can still like do bad things. And I think that that's like, that's just a level that I wouldn't necessarily have been able to wrap my head around as a kid. But even as an adult, like I'm struck by the fact that I immediately assumed like, oh, he must be like bad. There's a reason that he's behaving this way. But when I step back, I'm like, in the real world, there's a lot of people that do things not because they have specific bad motives, but just because they're not necessarily like benevolent people. And that's a really complex way to construct characters that I I don't think most kids authors are that's not like a strategy that most of them are using yeah I think it's also interesting in that Mr. Poe is a banker by trade and yet his his job in this context is to act more in a like lawyer capacity as the executor of the will and the estate when I think a better option and they might have fared a bit better if it if it was a lawyer or somebody more versed in in family law who kind of understood the nuances whereas Mr. Poe is a literalist so he's just like this is what it says I'm a banker got to get back to the bank see you guys Bye. Yeah. I mean, I was wondering if Lemony Snicket, because when I was reading the book, again, I didn't know that he had another name that we were aware of. I was wondering as I was reading if Lemony Snicket had some background or some like previous life as a lawyer, because I felt like a lot of the book read as a satire of like our legal system. And I'm sure we'll get more into that as we talk about the end of the book, where this really (laughs) rears its ugly head. I was convinced that Lemony Snicket either was a lawyer, had family members that worked in the legal world, or maybe had had some kind of like experience with the legal system that made him realize that there are so many holes or loopholes in it. Because it just felt to me like that's the point he's trying to make is that like when we actually make all of our decisions based exactly on what is written in the law as Mr. Poe does and then later on in the book as other characters do, then we're going to get ourselves into like really absurd situations. So I, I like to think that maybe there's something to that. I just didn't happen to find it in my research. Yeah. I mean, speaking of absurd situations, I think we should talk about the elephant in the room and that am I ready I don't know Kayla am I ready to do it I'm just gonna let you how about you start I'm just gonna let you go I'm stalling but how about you just start (laughs) so um, I, I read the books I saw the movie adaptation that came out with Jim Carrey and avidly watched it as a kid and yet like I still forgot that like a, a major sub point of the first book, the whole basically crux of the first book is that Violet, a 14 year old is going to be married to her distant cousin and a like really shady. And uh, it just, we don't have we, the words <laughs> listeners. We do I, not I, have the words. <laughs> I yeah. I don't, what are your, what do you want me to thoughts? jump in? Are you, you yeah. going to pass the baton over to me? Um, so yes, that is a huge part of this book. I would say that like maybe half of the 
plot is like leading to this moment when Count Olaf, who in addition to being a count, even though I don't know really, I don't know what that means in the context of this book, he's a count, but he also is an actor. And when the kids get to his home, they're informed pretty shortly after that that they're going to be performing in a play with him and his troupe. That's going to be like this huge deal. He pitches it to them as like this work of art written by like, I don't I guess a famous playwright, even though it seems like it's a pretty terrible play. And in the third and final act, there's a finale scene where there's a wedding And Count Olaf informs them that while the two younger siblings, Klaus and Sonny, are going to be essentially like extras in the play, Violet gets this very specific role to play where she's going to be the bride in that final scene, and he's going to be the groom. But after a few chapters of of research, because all of these kids are really smart, they love to research, luckily they have access to Justice Strauss's amazing library, and so when in doubt, they go there and they like just kind of try to solve their problems that way, which is something I love about this book. They, they come to realize that in setting Violet up as the bride and then in casting Justice Strauss, we find out has all of these like lofty theatrical aspirations as the officiant in this quote-unquote fake wedding on stage, Count Olaf is actually going to be able to execute like a legal marriage between the two of them. And in doing that, he's then going to have access to this sizable fortune that the Baudelaire children are coming into now that their parents are gone. It seems very clear earlier on in the book when the kids are dropped off that he thought simply by adopting them he was going to have all of this money and Mr. Poe was like uh no we have to wait until Violet is of age and Violet's 14 so he has a couple of years to wait so he's engineered this whole situation where he's going to get to marry her even though she's 14 even though they're family even though I I don't know exactly how old he is but he's considerably older than she is he's going to create this legal marriage between the two of them and even though he knows that like She's underage. He's like, uh, but guess what? I'm her legal guardian, so it's fine. I'm giving her permission. Um, <laughs> I think I have to throw it back to you. Back to you, Kayla. What happens next? <laughs> oh, and and so the kids spend like, uh, yeah, basically like the rest of the book researching how to get out of it. And as a sidebar, I love the little throwaway line where they're researching and they come across the term polygamy. Yeah. And that was interesting that he included like, that. Yeah, because they're just like, oh, cool. But they're like, they anyway. Research, yeah. <laughs> but they, they, they research, they find, they, they're trying to find a way and Sunny ends up getting kidnapped, the like toddler. And Violet's like, well, I guess I have to marry this guy because we can't find a like legal loophole. And the marriage, actually, the marriage ceremony as the play goes through and the only way that Violet doesn't end up marrying him at the end of the book is that she signs with her non-dominant hand, making the marriage certificate not legal, I guess, which was a creative, again, loophole. Sure, Um, Lemony. Sure. Okay. (laughs) But yeah, I was, I was struck by how just dark that was like the the main plot of the book is a 14 year old girl marrying a middle-aged man and it's not like it's a book like you know Catherine the the book that you recently covered when we're recording this it's not like this book is set in the 1290s although the time period is kind of vague and when this is set but it's clearly supposed to be a contemporary-ish type of setting 
And to just have that be the main plot point was just like very disturbing and rereading it, but was something that I kind of just took as fact as an eight or nine year old is like, oh, that's kind of weird, but like, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think as a kid, even though we're set up with that first paragraph, with the back cover copy, like we're set up to know that it's going to be an unhappy ending. I still had this faith that like, this is probably going to be okay. And I think when you're a kid and you are naive enough, you're able to sort of like, in some ways, read above all of those intricacies. And it's like, yeah, this is weird. But like, even though this is a series of unfortunate events, like this part's going to be fine. I think I just had this implicit belief that she probably wasn't going to actually have to go through with it. I don't know if that makes sense. But because I knew that in my like deepest heart and soul, my deepest nine-year-old heart and soul, I was like, oh, this is weird, but like, whatever. We'll just see kind of all of the antics that they get into between now and then. I think what I was really disturbed by as an adult was that for a while it seemed as though he was going to marry her and it was really just like a logistical arrangement. Not that that makes it like less creepy, but I somehow felt like more okay because it didn't feel like it was yet getting into this like inappropriate like physical sexual realm but he has a couple of lines later on where he says like sorry we have to go like enjoy our wedding night and that was when I I like my level of being disturbed and concerned and angry like stepped into a whole other whole other realm because it was like okay this is no longer just a logistical arrangement like this is no longer you just taking advantage of the legal system and your ridiculous position as their legal guardian and your like position of power in this theater troupe like it's not just you taking advantage of that anymore to make money it's like you additionally are using those positions of power to like take this young girl's agency and voice and wishes away and you're now going to it seemed to me like force yourself on her yeah and it felt terrible to read in a way that like I totally did not expect coming back to this book that also struck me as, as weird. But then there are also some of these, as a kid, throwaway lines that I like, again, just kind of like skimmed over, didn't notice the meaning behind it. But even some of the men in Count Olaf's troop are creepy or predatory towards Violet. And they're like, oh, she's so beautiful. Like, she's so pretty. And as a kid, it's like, oh, they're just, you know, like, I guess she's just very beautiful. But as an adult, knowing what I know now and and being an adult woman, it just was like, it just really rubbed me the wrong way. But I think that's what I still really, I still really enjoyed the book because there are people like that in the world. And I think when we try and sugarcoat that experience, Again, it just like paints this like rosy picture of adolescence when in actuality, like there are people that are predatory and that is disgusting, but that that's somebody's reality. Like being a child bride in a lot of states in America still is still legal. Yeah. And so as as disturbing and as visceral a reaction I had towards rereading it, I also really appreciated how he took a big risk and and including that because again like life isn't perfect and as disturbing as it is that is somebody's reality unfortunately yeah i i echo all of your points predatory is a very apt 
description, I think I wrote it down a couple of times in the margins of my book. And yes, there were a bunch of characters, pretty much any like grown man that came around Count Olaf's house felt like a predator to me in some way. And yeah, I had to, I had to stop myself every time I was getting outraged, even though I still feel outraged about it. And I had to remind myself, like, as much as I want to say, like, this isn't a thing, like, we can't make this a thing for kids. It is a thing. Even in 2020, it's a thing. And it's probably a thing much closer to home than many of us realize, like this, not this exact, exact scenario, but the, like, the vibe or the intention or the, like, just general ick factor about this kind of relationship. Like, this is a reality for a lot of people, again, closer to home than we might like to think about or admit. And so then I I was kind of, like, just stuck in this mental trap of, like, okay, I hate this. Like, I hate that this is in this book. I hate that I have to read about it. I hate thinking about the fact that, like, I maybe thought this was I don't want it wasn't a joke to me when I was a kid but I think there was something almost farcical about the whole thing like it's so absurd that as a young reader you don't take it seriously necessarily especially if you haven't been exposed to this kind of story in your own life so I was feeling that but then I was also thinking like okay the whole point of this book is that it's not supposed to be rainbows and butterflies And then I was like, oh, is it too far? Like, is this too dark? And it just, it really, as an adult, like, I think this book puts you through your mental paces at a different level than most all of the books that we've read for the podcast so far, because I really, like, couldn't figure out how I felt about it. Yeah, I I feel the same way. And I think that's, I don't want to see the beauty of this series, but it really challenges you to think about those experiences. Like even in this book, there's in the opening chapter um, or the opening line for chapter five, it's like, he, he says that it's, it's great to cry and it's such like, it's such an emotional release. And as a kid, again, you're like, okay, on some levels, you know, you might connect with it. But as an adult, there were so many passages like that, that I felt were written for adults who might have been reading it with their kid or reading it just in general. That resonated with me a lot more than just when I read it as a kid. And I think this marriage subplot is also one of those things where as a kid, I knew it wasn't going to happen. But as an adult, it just was very disturbing and made me angry. But it also made me realize just how fortunate and privileged I am. Yeah. Yeah, I think... A lot of emotions. It's a lot of emotions. And I also loved that passage that you mentioned about crying. I wrote it down to share. It says, unless you have been very, very lucky, you know that a good long session of weeping can often make you feel better, even if your circumstances have not changed one bit, which is so true. And I don't know about you, but I think when I was a kid, although my parents like didn't like repress my emotions, like I think as... I think it's probably an instinct when you're a parent and you see your kid crying to be like oh stop crying like everything's fine and even though the intention of that is just to like calm your kid down I think as a kid like you sort of get programmed if that happens to you enough times anytime you feel yourself cry to be like okay don't cry everything's fine it's okay everything's fine and I still do that as an adult sometimes although I've learned that like there's nothing better than a good shower cry like I am (laughs) such a shower crier love a shower cry. I know everybody has their preferred like cry zone of choice. Shower is 
number one for me. So reading that as an adult, I felt like very seen and understood. And then the other line that I found that really resonated with me at an emotional level as an adult was sometimes just saying that you hate something and having someone agree with you can make you feel better about a terrible situation, which it it just made so much sense to me as a grown-up in 2020. And it made me feel like okay about just Sometimes needing to like vent about something that I hate, have somebody mirror that back to me. We can't do anything about it. We can try, but just like sort of putting that stake in the ground of like, this is a thing that I know is wrong and I hate it. There's, there's value in that. And I, I did really appreciate that Lemony Snicket, Daniel Handler, whatever you want to call him, had these little kind of gems of emotional resonance that I would imagine adults reading this to their kids would, would just like breathe a sigh of relief when they came across. Yeah. And I think also one of the things that really resonated with me is as a, as a major theme in this book and in this entire series, which is resilience. Like I think there are other examples in children's literature where children overcome, you know, horrible things like Matilda immediately comes to mind, but What I appreciated so much about this series compared to other books that I read as a child is that they take ownership and they have, they they take ownership in their, in trying to overcome their problems once they realize that, you know, Mr. Poe isn't going to help them. Nobody, nobody is coming to save them. And so whether it's like Violet inventing a grappling hook to save her sister who's dangling out of a tower or claws like reading dense law books until dawn just to try and figure out how to get out of this situation like there is no magic spell there is no deus ex machina like coming to the rescue at the end like these kids are on their own and I think as a kid, that was powerful because it gave me the confidence to say like, hey, I can, if I just like research or if I, you know, have enough knowledge, you know, maybe I can get myself out of a difficult situation or I can help problem solve. And so as a kid, that was really powerful seeing that. And I think as an adult, that was also really powerful is that these kids aren't helpless. They will find a way to get out of their situation because they're the only people that can help themselves. I think kid readers love reading about some measure of independence in fellow kids. And I think that that's one of the reasons that the orphan trope is so popular in Kidlet, and that's something we've talked about on the podcast before, and my guests have had different and really interesting thoughts on why we read about and see so many orphans in kids' books and kids' movies. I happen to think that one of the biggest reasons is that when our kid characters are left to their own devices without parents, and often that's traumatic, of course, they get to be independent. They get to do things alone. They get to explore things that they maybe wouldn't have gotten to if they had parental supervision, and they have to do things that they maybe wouldn't have had to do otherwise. And while that's really difficult, it can also be empowering. And I think this book takes that concept to like a whole other level because in these other orphan books, like there's usually one adult, like we mentioned, who is looking out for them. Like they have somebody, even if they are in a really scary world and they feel abandoned and alone, there's one adult rooting for them. And this book takes that whole thing to a new level. And and while some of it was really scary, I thought some of it was fun. And I can see how 
young readers would really attach themselves to it. Like the whole scene where Count Olaf comes home and like makes them cook dinner and they go through all of Justice Strauss's cookbooks and then they go to the grocery store by themselves. As a kid who's never had to do those things out of necessity, and I know that there are kids that have to do those things in order to survive, but for kids who haven't and maybe would love the chance to like have some control in their lives and have some control over what they're eating and have all these questions about why their parents decide to like go to their grocery store at this time or like what they do at the grocery store or why they cook this or why they eat that. Like I think that those little scenes of independence are actually really fascinating for kids in a way that I probably can't even appreciate as an adult. So again, like as much as I hated that these kids were so lonely, I do think that like reading about such independence, whether it's going to the grocery store and cooking a meal alone, or like you said, basically figuring out everything that you have to do to survive on your own. There's just something really like magnetic about that for young readers. Yeah. I, as a kid loved the cooking scene especially because I've always been a home cook and my parents gave me the space to um, explore that. Like I took cooking classes when I was like eight, nine and 10 when I was reading this book. And so there was a part of me that was like, oh, cool. Like they're going to like cook some pasta. and Like maybe totally. I can try and make that. And yeah, it's weird. It's weird because I'm like, I know that this is wrong, that they're doing this by themselves. And again, like I know that there are kids in real life who have to do this and it's not a good thing and it's not a fun thing. And it's a thing that we like need to look out for in our communities. But if if you are coming from a privileged position of not having to do that and you're reading about this and you're like seven, eight, nine, ten years old, you're like, oh, that's so cool. Like I want to do that all by myself with my brothers and sisters. Yeah, definitely. Or the scene where she's making the grappling hook and I I love also as a quick aside that the the characters each have their own identity, but that doesn't stop them from learning new things or trying new things. Like Violet's whole shtick is that she's an inventor, but she's also like just as willing to get down in the stacks with claws and like read about the law. But I also really appreciated how she took, she had a problem and she couldn't just go to a store and buy something. She had to fashion a way to get up and scale this tower. And she uses just tools that are available to her. She's like, okay, I have an umbrella, I have some sheets. Like, what can I do with this? And again, as a kid who didn't have those complex problems, it was a nice exercise in thinking like, oh, like what would I use if I had to scale a five-story tower? And it was a great like imagination prompt. Yeah, and I I also think that to Lemony Snicket's credit, he did some interesting plays in 1999 on what we maybe at that point saw as these like traditional gender skills or experiences. I know that for me, like when I was growing up and we talk about this on the podcast all the time, you know, for decades and decades, I think that we were handed books where the little boys were inventors and liked to build things and liked to maybe be more physical and be the hero and maybe where the girl characters were more bookish and academic. And in this book, that's totally flipped. We have Klaus, who is the brother character who wants to do nothing but read. And we have Violet, who is the builder. And I think Lemony Snicket was kind of ahead of his time in that, especially because I think it was only a couple of years after that, that this whole idea of like, quote unquote, girls in STEM and then girls in STEAM, like really started to pick up momentum. And he was ahead of that. So um, I definitely applaud him for that. And that was a refreshing thing 
to read even now as an adult because I remember as a kid feeling like I just was so used to like every girl that I read about loving to read and every boy that I read about wanting to make things. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool that in 1999, he flipped those super tired stereotypes on their head in this series. Yeah. And I think this book is also full of just little asides that in 1999 and the early 2000s would have been shocking. Like I I remember there's a character in the troupe who is described as like neither a man nor a woman. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, I'm like, I don't understand what that means, but like, that's cool. And it's, it's something that's not made to call attention to, which is like a passing like, Oh yeah. Like some people are neither a man or a woman and you know, like they can be good. They can be bad. Yeah. It's fine. And now we're luckily so much more comfortable with that being sort of a casual aside, whereas I think a lot of times in other content that was produced around this time, if there was a mention of that kind of a person, it would be like a whole subplot of its own. This is just like a very casual description of a person and who is interested in other things and has other passions and is just a multifaceted human beyond just that description. So I think that that's a good point. I know that this is a complicated question to answer and I think it will probably be hard to capture it, but but do you think that he goes too far with this dark content in this book? And I know that sounds like a leading question and I don't mean for it to be because I'm not quite sure. Like I said, I think it's a very complicated question and I, I think that there are this book, the whole thing is dark. And so I think there are some dark moments that like maybe feel okay and maybe some that feel less okay. But on the whole, does he go too far in this book? Like, I don't really remember what happens in the other books in the series, but coming back to this now, does, is this one too dark? It's a great question. I mean, in some of the other books, there's like suicide, there's murder, there's child labor law. There's like a whole commentary on like child labor laws. I, I feel like if somebody is just reading this book, it's like, oh man, this is so dark. But I think the whole the whole book just in general is just so dark. Like in, in the third book, like I mentioned, the aunt like leaves a suicide note. And so the kids have to decipher it and realize that it's not an actual suicide note. It's a like cryptid message of, you know, like where she's hidden herself at but that's like a very dark dense topic for a kid's book that again is like less than 200 pages to to kind of like deal with in a in a way that is realistic and and again like owns to the fact that not everyone is happy in life like not everything in life is easy and I think each book kind of has a, a like big adult theme that is kind of compressed into the pages and you don't really notice it as a kid it's just like a plot but again in thinking just right now how many dark topics there there were there's a book about class and and when the kids were in boarding school so I think the book is just very dark the series is just at its core very dark. Yeah, and I I think that one of the things that sort of maybe takes the edge off is that it is so short and so the action does move really quickly. I think if the author were to linger on any one of these situations for too long, even in this single installment, it would feel really stressful and I'd be like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I still don't know if I'm being honest if this would be a book that I would like excitedly recommend to a kid before I reread it. I think I would just because mm-hmm. I remember loving it so much. But it was hard for me to get over this whole incest 
child bride wedding night stuff. Again, I know that's the reality for a lot for for a lot of people, but it was really hard for me to get through in this book. And that makes me sad because there are so many things that I love. I love the language. I love the way he inserts these little like vocabulary lessons. Mm-hmm. I love that there's this whole identity around Lemony Snicket that unfolds over the course of the series. I love how he talks to kids like they're adults. I love all of those things. But I was struck by the gravity of this like major plot point in the book. And I don't know, it was surprising to me how how hard it was for me to get over that. I don't often feel that way. And it was it was an interesting read because I feel like it forced me to contend with that kind of an issue and to like really sort through my feelings about it. And I, I don't always get that when I'm reading for the podcast anymore. So my feelings about it are definitely complicated. But I'd love to know if on the whole you feel like this reading experience maybe held up or if it disappointed you. Like where do you fall on that question? I definitely feel like it really held up for me. And I think to your point, I, I don't think in rereading it I would as enthusiastically recommend it for the younger like children in my life without caveating it to their parents and yeah. also making sure that like if the child was like ready for that type of content like this isn't a book to just like wholeheartedly throw on you know like an eight or nine year old but maybe a 10 year old or an 11 year old who is you know maybe about to enter middle school and has a bit more bandwidth to to kind of tackle some of those topics I think this is a great book but just as a here you go read it no context needed I don't think this is that type of book or series yeah I think that's a good way to sum it up and maybe this is a book maybe it's really about reading the series like I do feel like reading this book in isolation doesn't get at like the experience of a series of unfortunate events because it's it's really about like taking in the whole mood of the world and I wonder if I would feel any differently if I like read the next book right after it and sort of remembered what it was like to immerse myself in the whole thing but well this conversation was about as interesting (laughs) and complicated and mentally like exhausting in the best possible way as I expected it would be. So I'm so glad that we had this talk. Other than The Bad Beginning, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? So I recently read a book called This, uh, They Said This Would Be Fun, which is about a Black Canadian. I recently moved to Canada, so I'm trying to read a bit more um, Canadian literature and nonfiction. Um, But she talks about her college experience and kind of navigating being in a community where like she's the only person of color and also includes like some facts and figures about Canada because as an American I think there are a lot of assumptions I have about Canada and and kind of starting to learn more about their history um, and treating indigenous people very poorly up until fairly recently uh, and still to this day um, and also kind of the experience of black Canadians has been really interesting. Hmm. That sounds really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I'll include a link to it in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to The Bad Beginning. I would really encourage people to read The Bad Beginning and to reach out to Kayla and I, because I know that I want to talk more about it. So if you do decide to come back to this one, please do let me know. Really would would love your thoughts, especially on this question of like, is it too dark? I really want to know what other people think about that, because I'm still not sure how I feel. Kayla, thank you so much for being on the show. Listeners, if you're not following Kayla already on Instagram, please go check her out at Honey Butter Gal. Um, I love following you on Instagram, and I'm so glad that we connected in this book world and that we could 
book talk. I feel like we could book talk for like another couple of hours maybe, but (laughs) I know that you have to get on with your day. So um, I will say goodbye now and thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on the the podcast. I really appreciate it and look forward to seeing what other books you cover soon. You never know. Well, thank you. Bye. (laughs) Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>